If you couldn't do something yesterday and you don't want to do it today, well, I guess you're going to have to do it tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. Welcome to Triple Click, where we bring the games to you. This week we're talking about Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow, Gabrielle Zevin's wonderful new novel about the trials and tribulations of a trio of game developers. So stick around as Kirk, Maddie, and Jason tell the story of Sadie, Sam, and Marks. I'm Kirk Hamilton. I'm Maddie Myers. And I'm Jason Schreier. Hello. 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 Once Hello. again, we are Yay. back. We are. It's us. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. I'm mm-hmm. glad that there are three tomorrows in that title because there are three of us. And That's right. So one for this for triple each of us. read, we are. It's just a fitting, a fitting title for this triple. It read. really is. Yes, it really is. On this episode, I will be playing the role of tomorrow, mm-hmm. while Jason will be playing the role of tomorrow, and Maddie. Uh, this is a surprise twist. I'll be playing the role of and. Right. Uh. And then uh, we're actually going to have a a special guest come on (laughs) to play tomorrow, Uh of course, the third tomorrow. Very important. Um, If you like listening to this show today, (laughs) when you're listening to it, um, Uh we hope that you'll consider supporting Don't wait until tomorrow. Don't wait. Do it today. Um, and and you could support us tomorrow, but you could also support us today. And if you supported us yesterday, well, hey, thank you. No, you can't support us tomorrow. This is your last chance. No, today is your <laughs> last chance. You're running out of time. Oh, okay, so it's today and today and today. Those are your options. McDuff right. is going to show up. Some crazy shit is going to go down. You've got to get on it today. Exactly. It's going to change yes. everything. Become a Maximum Fun member and support listener-supported media like Triple Click and every other show on Maximum Fun. We love being a Maximum Fun podcast, and we love the fact that we can make this show uh, just with the support of listeners. That's a really cool thing. So if you go to MaximumFun.org slash join... You can become a member, you can support our show, and you can also get access to a whole tranche. Is, is that a good word? A yeah. whole tranche of bonus episodes. A, tre- a treasure tranche. <laughs> a treasure tranche, as, you know, as it's known. A treasure trove, a treasure tranche of bonus episodes that we've done. We've done one every month since we've been going. We're up in the 20s now. All kinds of topics that we've covered. We've done a lot of beans casts where we spill the beans, a.k.a. post spoilers for games and TV shows and movies. We've done just random conversations about personal things, our relationships to games and life, all kinds of stuff. This month, uh, or at least this most recent one, is about the TV show Better Call Saul, which was a very fun conversation about a very good show. Mm -hmm. And uh, we have a cool one planned for this month, for September as well. That should be a lot of fun. So yeah, MaximumFun.org slash join. Become a member, support TripleClick and Maximum Fun, and get bonus stuff. Get the beans. All right. Well, we are going to be talking about something a little bit different today. We're going to be talking about a book. And we've been we've been telling you all for a while that, that we would be talking about this book, so I guess it's not a big surprise. But here we are to talk about it. It's a book called Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow by Gabrielle Zevin. The very first triple read. Yeah. This is our first time doing a book together. It is. We only read books with words that repeat three times in the titles. So <laughs> That's right. If you can think of any good ones, let us know. <laughs> yes. um, all right. Here's a little synopsis to get us going. Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow is a new novel by Gabrielle Zevin. It tells the story of a relationship spanning several decades, an intense, mostly platonic, creative romance between two game developers named Sam Mazur and Sadie Green. He, the son of a Korean-American single mom with a brilliant mind for game design living in Los Angeles' Koreatown, and she, a member of a well-off Jewish family living in Beverly Hills. 
Sam and Sadie are thrown into a friendship by a chance meeting at an L.A. hospital where Sam is recovering from a traumatic car accident in the late 1980s. They bond over games of Super Mario Brothers, all while Zevin's storytelling time jumps around, giving us glimpses of the pair's later successes as game developers and some of their later challenges as well. Years after a childhood falling out, Sam and Sadie reconnect in the mid-90s in Boston. Sam is attending Harvard and Sadie MIT. They're both studying and dreaming about making games. They soon form a partnership along with Sam's charming half-Korean, half-Japanese roommate, Marks Watanabe, who quickly proves himself invaluable as their producer and also as their friend. Over the course of one intense summer, the three of them make their first game together, an indie game called Ichigo, A Child of the Sea, and it becomes a global sensation. Zevin then charts all three of their relationships as they start a small game studio, move back to Los Angeles, they navigate the turbulent world of video game development in the late 90s and 2000s, along with small and large personal tragedies and their ever-changing creative personal desires and relationships. And here I'll just provide a final warning that in this conversation we are going to spoil this whole story, so if you want to skip right to one more thing, I will bing my way in here and I will give you the timestamp right now. Bing! 51 minutes, 48 seconds. Bing! All right, let's get into it. We all read this book. Books are cool. That's my take. I like reading books. Um, I want to get some big overall thoughts from the two of you. Jason, how about you go first? What did you think of this book? My overall thought is that uh, if this was a realistic depiction of game development in the 90s, they all would have burnt out after five years because they <laughs> would have worked 16-hour days for seven days. So it just killed your immersion. You just um, couldn't get into yeah, it. Yeah, I just couldn't get into it. No, um, I really enjoyed this book. It also drove me crazy because the whole time I was yelling at Sam and Sadie to just friggin' talk to each other and mm. act like human beings. Um, it's a really... Well, it's, <laughs> do you don't think they were acting like <laughs> human yeah, beings? Yeah, do think they <laughs> were? Act like, act like a Okay, fair enough, fair enough. Um, I think it's really a testament to Gabrielle Zevin's just the quality of her writing and her capability as a storyteller that even though I... Uh, kind of hated the two main characters. I love the story. And I didn't really hate them. I just thought they were very flawed humans and some of their flaws drove me crazy. Um, but but you could still, but I could still empathize with them, which again is just testament to how good a writer she is and how good a storyteller she is. So I was just really impressed by the book in general. Um, could have done without the like gut punch uh, three quarters of the way through that really, really did not really ruin my afternoon. But um yeah, really, really enjoyed it for the most part. Nice. Maddie, how about you? I ended up really liking it. I did feel like the book kind of dragged in the middle. I'm curious if you two felt that way. There was this specific kind of turning point in the book for me where I felt like I started to get back on board, which is the party where Sadie takes ecstasy with Marks and his girlfriend, who he will soon be dumped by, and they kiss one another. And that was when I started to be like, oh, we're going to also have a love triangle, but a creative love triangle plus Mm. some real romance love triangle stuff happening here. It's not to say I need a love triangle in order to be interested in the rest of a book, but it, it... before that moment, there are many, many chapters of Sam and Sadie being very frustrating with one another. And those moments, while very human and very realistic seeming, could also be quite frustrating to read for the reasons that Jason already <laughs> uh, described. And I just I wanted to throttle the two of them sometimes. But then after that kiss, I felt like the book 
took on a really good pace for the entire second half. I'm actually not even sure if that kiss happens halfway through, but in my head it's halfway through. And then I sure. really liked the second half of the book and I loved the ending of the book, even though I think the final conversation that Sam and Sadie have might be the least realistic conversation that they have in the entirety of the book in the sense that usually people don't have that level of closure or smarts about their own relationship. And it's kind of a fantasy that you would have that moment with your BFF slash frustrating creative partner and be like, let's sit back and talk about this as though we were in a <laughs> novel that spanned decades of our lives. But it was extremely pleasurable for me, the reader, to have that finally happen between them. And it felt like a reward, a final video game ending screen, the credits, whatever. <laughs> it, it felt very rewarding in, in a particular kind of way. And, There's a um, good contrast to be made between that and the end of Better Call Saul, uh, yeah, which is also true. a decade spanning love story. Uh, That's and true. that the end of that the end of that show has roughly four lines exchanged in there. <laughs> well, yeah. And yet, I mean, I don't want to say anything about Better Call Saul. People can listen to the Beans cast. We're only spoiling the book here. So I'll just say the book is very rewarding to complete. And mm -hmm. um, looking back at this outline that Kirk made, I feel like I've even softened on some of the slower parts of the book because I'm reading through everything that happens in it. And I'm like, oh, that part was great, actually. It's just that reading about these creative struggles, you really feel the frustration of the artist characters along with them. And you're like, oh, come on, just talk to each other and collaborate better. Get it together, kids. How about you, Kirk? What did you think? I really liked it. Um, I just I found it so pleasant or so pleasurable, really, to read a book like this. It's just been a while since I've read this kind of sort of literary fiction that goes down easy, but is concerned with characters in this way. I don't know. I've been reading a lot of Stephen King lately. <laughs> Stephen King is just very different yeah. from this kind of book. So it was just nice to read a book that so thoroughly explores the inner lives of his characters. And yeah, I, there were two things about it that really stuck with me that I sort of walked away from it with. The depiction of youthful creativity and how that changes into young adulthood and the depiction of a partnership and the communication and lack of communication that can happen. The creativity part, there's a line early on and it is, I'm going to read it, I have it highlighted here. It's, there is a time for any fledgling artist where one's tastes exceed one's abilities. The only way to get through this period is to make things anyways. And I God, I resonate with that line. I know a lot of other people do. I hear from a lot of musicians and people who like to play music via strong songs. That's a very common thing where people will say, my taste is really good. I love, I know what sounds good. I know what's good, but I'm just not really that good at piano. And so when I make music, it's just, it's awful. And so I never want to release any of it. And I really know that feeling. I think anyone who's creative does. I just loved that. And I love the way that this book, especially in those early chapters, those sort of delirious period where they're so young and they're so excited to be working together and they make Ichigo, that was just so well depicted. And then while it's much more frustrating and goes on for much longer, the whole period of having success and then all of this complicated that comes after and all of these games and these moves and these miscommunications and these sort of creative failures and, you know, just they move forward in all these unexpected ways. The fact that they wind up making something unlike they ever would have expected they would have been making at first. I think that was just all wonderfully drawn and really liked that. And then the relationship part of it, I just think so often we see one side of 
a relationship like this and something that a novel like this is able to do better than really any other media probably is just really show you both sides to to use the name of Sadie's, Sadie's, <laughs> Sadie's um, artistic failure of, a, of an interesting sounding game yep. um, is to show you both sides. And I think that's not a mistake. Right. I think that that's Zevin being uh, Zevin being, you know, clever with the name representing some of the themes of the book. But I just I loved reading these sections that were very frustrating. Sam going through this long, anguished thing and assuming so much about what Sadie thinks. And I knew, you know, you kind of learn once you're maybe a third of the way into the book, oh, okay, whenever this is happening, I am next going to go and spend this same amount of time with Sadie, and I'm going to see what she was going through and the assumptions she was making about what Sam was thinking, which can be really tragic and sad when they're not communicating and when you're watching their friendship and their partnership fall apart. But I think that for me personally, just as a reader, it just really made me think about my own relationships and communication and the way that that works and how harmful it can be to make those assumptions about people. And that was just really like in, illuminating and interesting for me, uh, just just reading the whole story. I really loved that about it. So yeah, I thought this was a great book. So the one point that I think is probably was probably the most frustrating for anyone who reads this is, of course, when Sadie... Uh, essentially like tanks everything because she thinks that Sam had seen the note on the disc that yes. like essentially led her back to Dove to, to have the toxic relationship that she had. And essentially she makes all these assumptions about Sam's motives. Um, and then it's not for a while that Marx uh, points out that like, actually Sam probably wouldn't have seen this. And in fact, I probably put it in the, in the player. And even then Sadie just like, doesn't really grapple with it and grapple with the fact that, it really led to the deterioration of a relationship with Sam. And that was really one of the the big, if not the biggest sticking points. Um, it made me think a lot about my own relationships and how, uh, I guess, thankful I am to be in uh, what I consider a healthy relationship where we talk about things that bother us instead of, instead of letting them in. And I think that uh, is really such a, such a key part of any relationship, whether it's a marriage or a creative partnership is just to like be, adult enough to confront those things and talk about those things and I really don't think that like like there would have I don't think anything would have gone wrong or I don't think it, there would have been any bad reasons or negative reasons for or any cons to Sadie bringing that up with Sam and seeing what he actually said and maybe he would defend himself and maybe she wouldn't believe him but like at least they would have it out in the open and Sam would understand okay this is why she's upset um, instead of just letting it fester. And it really, man, it really bothered me. It really, it was so infuriating that they just let that, that Sadie just let that fester for so long. And man, as likable of a character as Sadie was, uh, that just ugh, makes me, gives me anger chills. <laughs> yeah, it's challenging. I mean, these I, I continually found myself trying to empathize with my own 24, 23-year-old self, since these are very young people doing yes. going through this. And of course, that's the kind of stuff that's hard. That kind of communication is hard when you're an adult or a, a more fully grown adult, let alone when you're a young adult, when you're in your early 20s. And when you're in your early 20s and you're really successful and you know there's all this attention on you. Uh -huh. um, but yeah, I mean, I was equally frustrated with Sam after he gets his foot surgery and has his foot amputated where he's really suffering. And it's so clearly so hard for him. I, I really thought that this book's depiction of that, of just his physical therapy, of the phantom pain of his foot, a lot of that just, I really empathize with him. There were some pretty gnarly descriptions of the, how much his foot hurt and just 
how an injury like that, which I think sometimes it's easy to think of an injury of like a foot. Oh, well, you don't need that to write. You know, that's your foot. I don't know. But how like a foot injury can completely upend your whole life and make everything so hard. I really thought she captured that really well Mm -hmm. and really sympathetically. And then as he's going through this, he's he kind of closes him off. He closes himself off from Marx and from Sadie and he's not reaching out and so Sadie starts to assume oh well he like thinks he's too good for me he thinks that he you know she gets all these things in her head and just because of their life circumstances they're separated for these various reasons and yeah they can't communicate and it is a great tragedy it's frustrating to watch it but at the same time I I definitely found it believable and sort of very rich um, just from a a character standpoint. Me too. It's interesting because I think both points of frustration are very similar actually because they're both scenarios where the character can't admit how much pain they're in. Like in Sadie's Mm. case, she is not willing to even describe her relationship with Dove as abusive for a long time and they stay friends or like kind of networking buddies throughout the entirety of the story, Mm -hmm. which I thought was really fascinating and also really common where you don't always just have an abusive relationship with someone and then never speak to them again. Like it's not always just, oh, you know, post a call out post of this major game developer who was your mentor and then you never speak to them again and everything goes great Mm -hmm. for you. Like Sadie's story is much more about this man who abused her and then also helped her career a lot and her mixed feelings about that. And I I really loved all of that. I was like, this is a level of complication for a female character that I don't think I've ever seen. And especially as something that I feel like a lot of readers might get something out of. Because I feel like, especially during Me Too, a lot of people were like, how can these relationships happen? And what are they like? And why do you even still talk to the guy? And this book really answers those questions in, a, in an interesting way. But it also means that Sadie in part, I think, because she still talks to Dove and still, like, gets something out of that relationship, even as a friend, not just career-wise, she feels shame about having to admit how much he hurt her as well. And also, to be honest with Sam and be like, when you told me we needed to work with him to promote Ichigo, it really hurt me. She's not capable of ever saying that to him, which is part of what the CD symbolizes to her, I think, is just actually being able to go to Sam and be like, I don't really care whether or not you knew about this, but I was in a lot of pain and I feel like you knew and didn't care or maybe you didn't know. Let's talk about it. And in Sam's case, it's like he's in a lot of physical pain, but he has so much shame around his disability that he's not ever willing to tell other people he's in physical pain, let alone the emotional pain of the fact that Mm -hmm. he he broke his foot because his mother died in a horrifying car crash that he was present for. Like that's also part of his whole life there's something striking about the fact that it's about video games and i don't know (laughs) if this is intended but i just had this thought while you're talking maddie that there's something striking about the fact that video games um are completely not subtle when it comes to displaying pain like you have a health bar on your screen yeah um Mm. every single video game it needs to tell you if you're in pain if you're Mm -hmm. suffering whereas these game developers like are just keeping the pain internal like there are no health bars there are no hit points right and all the games they make are so symbol laden like to almost an anvil extent where it's like okay both sides is about this character who fantasizes about not being in the hospital anymore Uh and she Uh pretends to be this warrior in this other world and it's like so literal I mean no offense to both sides and Ichigo for that matter but some Mm -hmm. of these games I was like I don't 
I don't know if I would love these. <laughs> I could have done without the whole pioneer section. That that part I felt dragged the pioneers section. That part me. was bizarre. Did, I feel like I guessed very early on that it was Sam, and then that whole section came off quite creepy to me. Mm-hmm. Did you two guess that, or was it a surprise? To yeah, you? it was extremely obvious. I thought yeah. that, that like they're yeah. not going to be. We're not going to be spending time with random well, yeah. characters like. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I I thought it was pretty clear it was him. I mean, to me, the games are a little bit secondary to the story. I want to go through the games. I think that might be a good way to just chronicle the story of the game of the of the whole book because the games sort of progress along through the story as they make new games. But you know, again and again and again, Zevin comes back to this idea. Like what you were saying, that games provide all this clarity and games provide these systems and you can master a game in these different ways. And these characters repeatedly think to themselves these similar thoughts of if only this were so simple, if only making a game or working with someone or having relationships or being in love or whatever else, like if only that could be as simple as Mario Brothers, where it's just super clear cut and a game gives me this clarity. And then the games are constantly juxtaposed against their real lives and their creative struggles and their personal struggles. And I think that works. Like, as a literary device, the games work. And then, yeah, it's it's fun reading it if you're really into games, if you know something about game development, just because, of course, there are things about it that aren't that believable. Um, a game developer friend of mine was basically like, the least believable thing about this game is how their ideas just go just turn up in the game like they, they have an idea and then the game yeah, is pretty much there. that idea yeah <laughs> like, as which opposed of course, to something like, completely different yeah tom bissell in the new york times in his review in the new york times also mentioned that exact same thing that like the the book could have done more to characterize the professional struggles rather than just the personal struggles that's not the story this wanted to tell of course Mm-hmm. Right. And I think that's that's fine because it's clear that Gabrielle Zevin is really deeply into video games and she laces all of these wonderful references through the book. And, you know, it's it's very of a piece with the way that I think about games and the way that I think a lot of people do, the way that people who grew up on them and like to, you know, think in this sort of critical way, you know, think about games. And I think that's uh, a really special thing about this about this book. So I guess let's go through these games. And I'm kind of curious just how the two of you envisioned each of these, because they are described, but they're also, you know, there's a bit of shorthand used and we're supposed to be imagining them. And also I'll say that for my part, I pretty much just imagine that everything in this book in terms of the games was taking place 10 years later than it was in the actual story. Like Ichigo is not a game that would be made in the late 90s. That's a game from the like maybe 2010s. It's a game like Journey. That's like yeah. a 2011 yeah, or year game, uh-huh. right? Uh-huh. Yeah. 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 Like both sides is not really a game that would have come out in the 90s. That would probably happen later. Counterpart High. I mean, for them to make a Persona clone like three years after the first Persona game came out. So whatever. Unlikely. I mean, even Dead Sea, the reflections on the pools of blood. Yes. I was like, that's not even possible. And she like writes some paragraphs being like, it was actually Actually very impressive even at the time and I'm like I don't know that computers could have <laughs> sure what about yeah. Dead Sea I read Dead Sea as basically Bioshock and me that's too 2007. yeah that was what I was picturing right. was like the little sister but like as the main uh-huh. character because you're playing as this little girl right. fighting the zombies but she uh-huh. is twist ending herself a zombie I loved that there was a like absurd arty twist ending it felt very dope of course like yes. what a what a well realized asshole he is Dove he is like, a great character kind of I will say an asshole character, great top character. to bottom yes. like feels like a real guy you know his apo- the meeting that they have near the end of the book yeah. where they get lunch after they're both kind of you know separate from one another and he's jokingly like I wouldn't date me I'm an asshole and it's like have uh-huh. you learned anything is this a joke to you I don't but it's 
sounds like he just seems like a guy. What's funny is that it's a it's a it's a rite of passage, I think, for teenage Jewish girls to have a crush on an older Israeli who they meet at like summer camp or on birthright (laughs) in Israel or something. And uh, he's a douchebag. And (laughs) (laughs) it's just it's just a rite of passage. Yeah, I think it unfortunately is also a rite of passage in in fields where women are the minority and they are fetishized. Like that kind right. of has the double whammy here. I know you're kidding yep. around, Jason, but I do feel like there is something about this story that is pretty common and a tragic way. In the cases I'm talking about, usually nothing happens. It's right, just like a, right. a crush. But in this yeah. case, but in an this abusive case, relationship came of it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there are a lot of little moments of truth. Another early game is Solution that Sadie makes for her class. This is a clear kind of reference to Brenda Romero's game Train, which is the same idea. You're packing trains, and then, of course, you realize over the course of the game that you're actually packing trains that are being sent to concentration camps. That's in Train. And in Solution, it's the same. You're designing, I think, what pumps for the gas chambers at Mm -hmm. concentration camps. Then, of course, you find that out, and then the only way to win the game is not to play. It's a very creative and, and fun idea. And I think there's a moment where Sadie is looking for solidarity to the other woman in her class yeah. and totally doesn't find it there. And yeah. that that student winds up like going to like lodging I an ethics complaint about her. I thought that was amazing too. There were a lot of things in this that I was like, Gabrielle Zevin was a girl gamer. Like that was, there were so many moments yeah. where I was just like, she gets it. She's been that here. She had this true. argument with like another girl in her college class. I don't know what the circumstances were, but like there were just so many moments that I was like, this is real life. This is mm-hmm. something very, true. very similar to what I've experienced where like there's the only two women in a, in a room of mostly men and they're like, well, we got to fight to the death. <laughs> and it's just like, why, why, why is this <laughs> happening? Yeah. Yeah, that uh, just from stories I've heard that are like that, that struck me as a moment of truth. And then I like Emily Blaster as well. This is the Emily Dickinson poetry <laughs> shooting hilarious. game. It's kind of an edutainment game like we talked about a little while ago. <laughs> that I could see coming in the 90s, I will say. Yes, I, I agree. That one game. feels also very much like the college student game that you make because you ran out of time. Like that felt like perfect yes. as an example. Yeah. And it's fun the way that with both Solution and Emily Blaster, the way that she references them continually throughout her career and kind of keeps coming back to them. Because I think, again, I keep coming back to this, the way that this book depicts creative evo- like evolution and development and the way that you're always kind of going back to those early years and the way, like just how she'll think back to when she made something like Solution and threw it together and or people will reference it that she'll be being interviewed by Kotaku or whoever. Mm-hmm. A lot of quality Kotaku cameos in this book. Yes. Um, and they'll sort of mention Solution or Emily Blaster, you know, to show they're a real fan and just she'll reflect on who she was when she made those games. I think that all of that is just really um, feels very true to me as well. Yeah, mm-hmm. when you're creating something new and you're staring at a blank piece of paper, you're often trying to and you've done it before you're trying to channel the energy that you had like mm-hmm. I'm working on a third book right now and just being like what what kind of what was I thinking how did I possibly write my first right. two books like what what the hell how did that even happen I yeah. think also when your reach exceeds your grasp in those youthful years that Kirk was describing you still remember those ideas for the rest of your life and, and a lot of creative people have described like I actually came up with this idea when I was 19 years old and I made That's a crappy true. version of it but I think the idea was really good I feel like I read that in so many interviews not just with game developers and oftentimes it is a good idea it's just something they could never possibly have done at that time. Isn't that the story of Inception that Christopher Nolan dreamed out oh, of when he it? was a kid? Which absolutely tracks for that movie. That and then he finally had Inception. a blank check and <laughs> could make his like dream heist movie. And it, it explains you know, a lot. it worked. Sure. 
Um, so now we get into the games that they actually make with their uh, their their game studio. What's their game studio called again? It's like Unfair Games. Unfair Games. And they all it. have a different idea of who came up with the title. Right, that's fun. The kind of Rashomon who came mm-hmm. up with the title thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So their first game is Ichigo, A Child of the Sea. Another game that does not sound like it would have come out in the early 90s or I guess mid 90s. Um, but, uh, you know, kind of an adventure game. It sounds a little bit like like a journey, like a sort of more complex journey. I could never quite tell how much, like how many systems there were in Ichigo. I know the movement was really complicated. There's a lot of fun discussion of how hard it is to get Ichigo's walk right. Mm-hmm. And I think the thing that struck me about this game that was interesting is how hard they tried to make Ichigo not designated a male or female character and how they constantly run into people being like no it needs to be a boy like we're gonna make it a boy and then eventually Ichigo becomes Sam and then that of course leads to this just kind of you know that it's one of the rifts between them is the way that Sam who is kind of naturally this very extroverted guy who loves to get up and you know do the Ken Levine thing and give the talk and make everyone feel smart and welcomed uh-huh. and sell the game in that way which is a real skill as a game as a game developer and Sadie doesn't like doing that stuff but she watches as he does it he becomes identified with the game and people are basically like well Ichigo is Sam and Sam is you know unfair games and this whole thing is him even though so many of the ideas were hers and the tech was hers and that kind of continues to be an issue for them as they mm-hmm. go. It reminded me of that Mythic Quest episode, A Dark Quiet Death. Really, yes. the whole book reminded me a lot of that, but especially the part where the marketing executives of the publisher that they go with really force the <laughs> game to have a male protagonist because that's a sort of like uh, creative compromise that you make and then suddenly you're uh, turning your game into like an action shooter with a terrible B-movie spinoff. Yeah, mm-hmm. it reminded me of um, Poppy and Ian. Is that his name? Ian? He's such a silly name on yeah, Mythic Ian. Quest. Yeah, uh-huh. it, rem- it reminded me of that too in almost a fantastical way, to be honest, because there really aren't that many game development teams that are a man and a woman of technically equal respect within the studio mm-hmm. itself, but it's just a matter of correcting the record outside the studio. I mean, I think part of that is because the stories we want to tell nowadays, we want it to be diverse, of course, because, you know, there are so many, it's sort of an accepted fact. Well, that it also play games. makes for more drama. Because yeah, of when course. There's I like mean, a can... will they, won't they aspect to it. There's right. Also... But there were some things in this book that I was like, would, would the Persona developers be two gay men and they would be out like publicly? Would that happen in this time period? And would this tiny game studio have this woman creative director essentially and would she have this much power at age 23 like there were some things like that not in a bad way but just like in the sense that I mean, i'm like ken ken and uh ken and roberta williams uh, roberta williams is kind of my my go-to 90s. mental example of this but mm-hmm. i also know like the 90s were the midst of a backlash against women in gaming so i'm kind of like but that's what makes the book more enjoyable to read is just the fact that you get to have a more diverse cast of characters to look at and just relate to as a modern day reader who can then map that onto studios today. But I do feel that way about Poppy and Ian sometimes too, where I'm like, is there a Poppy in current day who's like making World of Warcraft? I, I don't think she would succeed at Blizzard. <laughs> so I mean, it's tough. It's tough. You know, you want that to be real. Yeah, I guess. I mean, for me at least, any believability stuff like that, it always seems to take a a backseat to the overarching goal of the novel, which is to explore 
many different types of relationships because we get to see, is it Simon and Ant? Yeah, Simon and yeah. Ants. We get to see some of their relationship. I think yeah. we even get a, a chapter from the perspective of, is it Ant? I think from his perspective. We get mm-hmm. some standalone chapters. So I think Zoe gets a chapter and a, a couple other people do. I guess Anna, doesn't she get a chapter? Sam's mom. So it's like she wants to explore different kinds of relationships and she's more interested in that than anything specific to like the game development side of it being all that believable. Mm-hmm. And I think that's fine. Like I basically yeah. accepted that early on and was like, this is a primarily a book about relationships that's using this backdrop as a very fun metaphorical backdrop that I, yeah. I do think works really well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Um, I like that they have to make the sequel and that it's just sort of not as well received. All of the video game review excerpts are wonderful. (laughs) Yeah, so despite, I mean, despite the nitpicking there that Maddie, that you just did, which is totally fair, this is also the most accurate recreation of the video game industry that I've ever seen in a piece of The accurate parts are just, cut you to the bone. And the depiction of games journalism, like, I will accept that I've been (laughs) it's It's very funny. The part where she, I don't even know which character says it, but it's like, video game reviewers always like to describe a non-character as a character in the game. And I was like, Mm -hmm. I've probably done that oh, yeah. <laughs> thing ever. destroyed um, <laughs> but uh, I think that that helps me look past maybe the less realistic parts such as like uh, the time and, and a woman having the sequel role in the time being yeah it's more I fun can to accept read that anyway. as a fantasy exactly I accept that as a fantasy because so much of it is so accurate yeah I wouldn't mm-hmm. want to play Ichigo too though <laughs> no I wouldn't play Ichigo either those controls sound really frustrating Mm-hmm. Well, Ichigo 2 sounds like such a classic video game sequel where a game that you loved gets another game that's more of the same. And it's it's not an Assassin's Creed 2 where it's more of the same, but that's a good thing. It's right. I don't know what sequel you'd compare it to, but, you know, one where it's just sort of ah, the magic just kind of isn't here. They're they're playing the hits, but the but the tempo doesn't quite match. And then both sides is such a classic sophomore stumble where, of course, Ichigo 2 doesn't really count. Both sides just sounds like this wildly ambitious game. It reminds me of The Longest Journey, that adventure game, the premise of it, which is a really wonderful point-and-click adventure game where you play as a young woman who's in this one world and then discovers a portal to another world and winds up doing a kind of Alice in Wonderland thing back and forth between the two and having a whole adventure. It's sort of a late 90s adventure game. And I could see that working for a late 90s adventure game, but it's pretty wild that they make it work with like real-time technology that's <laughs> streaming two different worlds at the same time and stuff. Yeah, and it sounded in some parts like you could switch between the worlds at will because there were people who got really into the Mm -hmm. hospital world and just only played that. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. so you can beat the whole game that way? That's crazy in and of itself. I mean, right? Like you imagine experience. You imagine sort of twenty, like uh, Titanfall two or uh, Dishonored two game where there are levels where there are two levels superimposed and you can press a button and go between them and it's the coolest thing ever. But those are games from what 2017 or something 2016. Right. Right. Um, this is, I think, this game is probably the least well-defined and the one that's also the most metaphorical of all of them. Mm-hmm. So I think that kind of matches up, right? That makes sense. It's the one that has to do the most metaphorical baggage carrying because it has to represent how they were growing apart. I mean, this is when they're really removed from one another and they each basically make separate games and then they just stitch them together and then have this realization afterwards of like, oh... You know, this part that that Sadie made is actually like reflecting something that Sam said. And Sadie, there's the I love when she realizes that um, Mapletown, which is the part that everyone winds up really liking, actually 
has a lot of her ideas and he sort of explains to her like no I made this because of this thing you said like I made this because I wanted you to play it like this was all kind of for you when she was thinking of it as oh that's Sam's world like that's Sam's game of course they all like Sam's game and when they finally do communicate about it I I thought that was a a neat trick like a neat way to do that in the story Mm -hmm. I think another yeah another very accurate part of the creative process is that idea of like having your one target audience member in mind and like being like I can't wait till this person like sees this or reads this Mm -hmm. or plays this I think that's another very true very true thing yeah right which then of course becomes very true later with with pioneers so Mm -hmm. this is kind of where I guess we should talk about Marx's death because this is like it is kind of the major fulcrum point it happens right around here counterpart high also comes out the persona clone they didn't make that that's just sort of a fun little thing in the background it's a fun detail that the people they brought on wind up making a game that's way more successful than anything they make financially anyway. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And just, I don't know, those characters just seem nice. I like Ant and Simon. They're nice supporting characters. But yeah, this is kind of where things fall apart because Marx is killed essentially by some like gamer trolls who come to the office and shoot the place up and kill him. Which, yeah, I mean, I guess I have... I, I My take on this is that I think it's okay that Marx dies. I think that having him... That's kind of his role in the story, and I mean that in the kind of sad way that it implies. Like, that's kind of Marx's character, and that's the tragedy of Marx, is that he was never quite the star, right? He was he was just this affable guy who really goes along and really makes so guy. much things work. Right, he's the NPC, as they describe, and so then he dies. Like, that is a fitting role in the story. I think the way that he died it was pretty upsetting just because that's scary. Violent gamers are scary anyways. I don't know. I don't know if he needed to be shot. Like, if it needed to be this shocking violence, that whole scene was just really wild and a little jarring for me. He could have just gotten cancer and died or something. There's a lot of ways that people can die, die in a car accident. But um, I don't know. I'm curious what the two of you thought. Well, it felt very real. Um, it's just, sure. it's just a gut people punch. do. Yeah, sure. People get yeah, shot in I, office shootouts. The mm-hmm. the only I mean that was another part I felt dragged a little bit was just the the dreams that uh, his mm-hmm. his subconscious as he was dying. Um, I didn't super need all of that stuff. Um, but I, I I think it worked because I think that part of being a game developer is like actually that scary reality that gamers can be really friggin' scary. And um, as far as I know, we haven't seen any actual incidents of like a shooting, but we've certainly seen death threats and um, people uh, uh, go way too far with their swatting and, and all sorts of crazy stuff. So um, it felt true to me. Yeah, I mean, people have also tried. There was the Ubisoft threat not that long ago, right, in France. And yeah, there have also certainly been celebrity deaths where a fan or angry fan has attacked a celebrity and people have died. I mean, there are other examples you can point to. But I don't know. I I have mixed feelings about it. I, I There was a part of me that felt like it was too much because the book has so much death already that it started to verge on soap opera for me when Marx also died, not because I felt like his death didn't make sense or something, but simply because, again, this is a book where a lot of other characters die. Like, there's the NYC jumper. I thought the scene between her and... Um, Sam's mom was really interesting and weird and uncanny and then her death affecting Sam for the rest of his life felt like a through line that made a lot of sense and then later his uh, grandpa, uncle, elderly Mm. relative dies as Mm -hmm. well and that's a big part of the, the ending moments of the book and 
Um, it just it feels a little weird to kill off another major character in a book that only has a couple characters in it, if that makes sense. And it's like, OK, so you wanted to take Marks off the board and get back to the story that's just about Sam and Sadie and their relationship. But I'm just I'm not sure if an office shooting is the best way to do that. Yeah, that's kind of where I come down as well. I mean, I I agree that it's it's believable, and that's not really my issue. It's more that just the the violence and trauma of it creates a ripple in the story that's much bigger than it maybe needed to be. Given that this story is generally, you know, moving in these ebbs and flows, there's this kind of bombshell drops into the middle of the water, and it's pretty horrifying. And I was a little just like, whoa, I, mm, right? Not sure, but again, Marx's death, the way that it works is is it's like works in the overall framing of the story yeah i mean it's a story about human relationships and partnership and the the kind of the love whether platonic or not uh that springs from that and i think marx's death allowed um gabrielle seven to explore a new dimension of that which i thought was interesting right and so for that reason i think it works because you can suddenly explore grief going into that and does Sam Sam is grieving but does he also see this as an opportunity because he has this unrequited love um, subconscious subtle love but certainly there uh, mm-hmm. for Sadie and so there's certainly some some uh, I mean interesting stuff that comes as a result of that so I liked it for that reason I suppose for sure no yeah I think that he essentially almost had to die from the mm-hmm. beginning of the story when I when I look at it overall and that's for that reason let's talk about the end and about their relationship because to me Sam and Sadie never seemed like a romantic thing I actually didn't really entertain any will they or won't they it just struck me as I understood their dynamic from the start. I understood that it was a little more to Sam than it was to Sadie. That was pretty clear just in the way he thought about her and the way they interacted and that it was also just never going to quite reach that level. And Marx, by his presence, was this kind of buffer between the two of them. He was the eminent producer. He was the one who just kept everything moving along. And then when he was gone, they had to figure out what they actually mean to one another. And I think that is like structurally really smart writing. Like that's just a really great way to tell that story. And I do, I did really like the ending. I mean, I was just by the end of a book like this, I'm just kind of, you know, that feeling when you're at the end and you're just coasting along on this feeling of just these people that you know, and you know, it's coming to the end. And I could tell, I was like, they're going to be fine. Like, of course, these kids are going to be fine. Like they're so lucky they found one another and people very rarely find someone like that. And that was the ending that she went with. And I thought that was was really wonderful and Marx played his role you know that that he always played uh, in a, in a sad but but really kind of lovely way mm-hmm. yeah I didn't necessarily see it as uh, like a sexual longing but I did think it was somewhat romantic on Sam's yeah. side and I felt I, like I the book was an it's sort of taking an approach to entertaining the idea that Sam was asexual without outright saying yeah. that because oh, I think that was made yeah. cl- uh, to me it was clear yeah I mean, without without Sam identifying himself as such, but like he describes yeah. having multiple sexual experiences with men and women and not enjoying it, not really feeling connected to his body, not really feeling a need for that in his life, but then still having some feeling for Sadie that is undefinable. And I think... Well, also extreme jealousy. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's the part Marks of it where I, I would say it's almost like it's a romantic love, but not a sexual one. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, usually definitely. people will describe... I mean, in our modern day, people will describe aromantic and asexuality as like two different 
uh, ways to describe yourself. And in in this time period that this book is written, I don't even think the language for that is is there and certainly not something Sam's familiar with. But like as a reader, I was kind of thinking along those lines, like, I, I wonder if that describes him. But also, I really liked that at the end of the book, Sadie was, I wouldn't say she shuts him down, but she's kind of like, what we have is so much more special than any other relationship in my life, which is really <laughs> intense to say, given her love for Marx and the fact that they had a child together. But Sam and Sadie, it's beyond just a romance for them. It's like a lifelong best friendship. And the two of them have been there for each other in deep depression. Like that's a really common theme for both of them too, is like one of them is extremely depressed and the other one is like, God damn it, I have to go rescue Sadie slash Sam <laughs> from this situation again. And that is, I don't know, it's almost like a brother-sister vibe. It's its interesting. And I feel like I've, it's rare to see a story about something like that that doesn't also make it somehow sexual and have it be like, and Sadie's so hot or, you know, whatever. And I, I just, Agreed. I kind of liked that that wasn't really a part of it because it's interesting to see a character like Sam who doesn't experience that in the same way. Yeah, I don't like it, actually. Um, because, <laughs> You're against it? <laughs> well, I just don't think, I think the ultimate relationship is love and is two people who are in a like loving romantic relationship. And I don't really think that like being super close, best friends, professional with someone supersedes that in any way. Like, I think that uh, I think a romantic relationship would be stronger than that, even if there's no sex involved at all. And it seems like Sam doesn't need that. And maybe they're not compatible because maybe Sadie, yeah, I Sadie mean, needs it and Sam doesn't, which is, yeah. <laughs> which is part of the whole thing. But I, I just don't think I don't really buy this idea that like there are some like relationships that are strong stronger than romance because I really don't I think I've always believed the opposite that love is the strongest force and there's nothing that supersedes that and like my uh, like my wife I consider my best friend and like I consider that the strongest relationship in my life and I wouldn't want it any other way yeah I don't really see it that way because or at least I don't think that the book is the this story is running counter to that only because I think it is about love I think it's about there's a the sort of profound romantic love of creative partnerships. I mean, when you really find someone that you can create with, that's that can be a really profound thing. I mean, there are a lot of, you know, partnerships between two heterosexual women or two heterosexual men or whatever, like people who just aren't at all attracted to one another and yet still have a sometimes tempestuous romance over the course of decades while they create and make things together. I think that's kind of part of what the story is going for. No, but I, I think that's all true. That's all well and good. But it's the, the part I take issue with this Sadie being like there's some like some this relationship is stronger than love or whatever. I'm paraphrasing what she said. Mm -hmm. Like the, the the notion that it's like what we have is better. Like lovers like come every every day, but like what we have is stronger than that. Like that's the part that I kinda take issue with the comparison of the two, I suppose. So you disagree with Sadie, but not with the novel. Yeah, I disagree with the notion. No, I totally, I'm, Kirk, I'm 100%, like, creative partnership is awesome. But I think there's, like, like putting one above the other is a notion that I disagree with pretty strongly and being like, this is more special than love, especially yeah. when when she had, like, like Maddie pointed out, like, she had this relationship with Marx and it's kind of fucked up. Like, you had a kid with this dude and you're saying your relationship with Sam is strong is like more important to you like that that I take issue with that sort of right I would say that the 
The book is not making that argument. Oh, yeah. No, right. definitely. Yeah. I disagree with Sadie. The book is not saying that it's not really about one winning or coming out on top. It's a just a, a wonderful depiction of that other type of love. And I actually sure. really value that about the book because there are lots and lots and lots of depictions of romantic love it's in true. the world. And it's actually kind of rare to find one like this. And I... For that reason, if for no other reason, all these other reasons, I really think it's a it's a wonderful and, and unusual book. Yes. Yeah, me too. And I, I think I, I guess as a counterpoint for you, Jason, I would mm-hmm. maybe compare it to something like um, a familial relationship where it's like you would never try to say that a relationship with a, a coveted family member is somehow more special or more important than your relationship with your wife. But there is something extremely different about that relationship that you probably place in a different mental category. Sure. And I'm imagining that that's what Sadie is trying to communicate to Sam right, at the end of the novel is that they have something that is like being a married couple, but it's also like being brother and sister. And it is it is unlike those relationships at the same time. It is a third other thing that they have that is a creative partnership and also two people who've known each other since they were children, which I can't even think of a comparison for that. Like, I don't know, I guess like family bands, like members of uh, musical groups where they've known each other for that long, but it's pretty rare. Leonard and McCartney or something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I was thinking of, of examples like that or like Simon and Garfunkel who famously don't, Ever <laughs> didn't ever want to talk to each other again. I mean, it's like, but that those are described as intense breakups. And although they're not mm-hmm. romantic, we understand them through that lens because creative partnerships can be just as tempestuous as someone telling you, like, I don't talk to my mother anymore. Like, that can be just as intense of a breakup. Uh, Lennon sure. and McCarthy also broke up because of a violent shooting. So, yes. Yeah. I, that was actually one of the examples I was thinking of in my head during Marx's death was that I was like, well, that's how I Lennon guess they died. broke up before that, but that's how their relationship was severed. Yes, yeah. You're, you're talking about Lennon and McCarthy, right? <laughs> Lennon and McCartney, of course. <laughs> yes. The, uh, yes. The, uh, the long-standing relationship between Lennon and McCarthy. Yes, Lennon and McCarthy. <laughs> we all remember the pains of McCartneyism, where we all yes, had to yes. describe what, which B-sides we really liked better than the A-sides based on Lennon and it's McCartney. It's true. Arguments. Are you now or have you ever been a fan of the White Album? Um, all right. Well, this is has been a really lovely book to talk about. I had a great time reading it. Thanks to everyone listening who read along with us. This was fun. We'll probably do this again at some point in the future. Um, and uh, and yeah, that's Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow by Gabrielle Zevin, uh, a lovely book about video games and really a book about people. All right, let's take a break and we will be back for one more thing. there, I'm Ellen Weatherford. And I'm Christian Weatherford. And we've got big feelings about animals that we just gotta share. On Just the Zoo of Us, your new favorite animal review podcast, we're here to critically evaluate how each animal excels and how it doesn't, rating them out of 10 on their effectiveness, ingenuity, and aesthetics. Guest experts give you their takes informed by actual real-life experiences studying and working with very cool animals like sharks, cheetahs, and sea turtles. It's a field trip to the zoo for your ears. So if you or your kids have ever wondered if a pigeon can count, why sloths move so slow, or how a spider sees the world, find out with us every Wednesday on Just the Zoo of Us in its natural habitat on MaximumFun.org. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Kevin. 
Carrie, is it? Oh, yes. Hi, I'm Carrie. I am Psychic Ross, and I will be reading you this evening. Oh, interesting. Well, okay. I co-host a podcast. It's called Ono, Ross, and Carrie. Yes, I'm sensing that. The spirits are telling me it is a show about Well, it's about like fringe science and spirituality and claims of the paranormal. Oh, you knew that. You do research online. But more importantly, like we do in-person investigations. Investigate as well. Oh, my God. That's amazing. See? Me and my friend. This is so weird. My friend Ross, same name as you. Weird. He and I just go and try them all out. And actually, we've gone to a number of psychics. And to be honest with you, it's a lot like this. It's called Ono, Ross, and Carrie. They can find it at MaximumFun.org. I could have told you that. And we're back for one more thing. Uh, Maddie, why don't you go first? Sure. So I watched Nope, the Jordan Peele movie. And talk about something I don't want to spoil. And that's hard to talk about without spoiling it. Give me the vague overview. Have you you both not seen it? I have not not, seen it. It's not really going to change what I'm going to say. And I'm sure plenty of our listeners haven't as well. Well, so first of all, I recommend it. I would say it is a great movie about what it's like to have been working in Hollywood for a long time and being a very successful director who has some anxieties (laughs) about how to keep making movies and how to, and the exploitation in that industry and not just racism, but just general exploitation, exploitation of child actors. There's, there's a lot of um, sort of discussion in the movie about the treatment of animals on sets, which I think is the, the text there is also subtext where I do think that animals are often mistreated on, on sets. But I also think it's saying something about how we as humans mistreat the earth and also other people in our lives. And mm. I just thought it was fascinating. There's a whole lot in the movie. And I've been thinking about it since I saw it. Some really cool images a lot of themes. Like, I feel like with Get Out, Jordan Peele was like, okay, I'm going to have characters face the camera and be like, this is racism. This is a (laughs) film about racism. And like, now he can make a movie that's much more cerebral and you have to really think about some of the shit in it. And you have to be like, what was he trying to say with that? And you talk about it with your partner and you're like, yeah, I guess I could see that. And I dig that for him. I really dig that for him. It's a much weirder movie it's also very funny as a jordan peele horror movie is want to be there are a lot of extremely funny parts and it made me a little sad that i was too scared to watch us i've been too scared to watch us this entire time i may oh, someday it's not watch that it bad. it's not but that this, scary it, that I, I can't talk about it i that trailer gave me nightmares i can't i don't know i'll watch it at some point in the middle of the day I will pause it frequently and get up and walk around and i know that it will also have jokes in it to diffuse the tension but Doppelgangers stress me out, man. I couldn't have played love doppelgangers slash counterpart <laughs> high. It's it's creepy, man. It's creepy to think about a doppelganger living under the earth, like controlling your every every move. That's creepy to me. But um I actually didn't think Nope was scary. But it's so subjective. Like I have a friend who was utterly terrified by it. So I'm like, I don't even know what to tell people. It might mm-hmm. completely terrify you, but it also might just be something you think is like uh like mentally thrilling. I don't know how to describe the feeling that it, it gives Is it you. streaming or did you see it in the Yes. Theaters? Yeah. No, it's streaming now. It's as of last two weekends ago. So that's... I think you have I, to I rent it, to, right? Yeah, it's I rented it. I rented it. Yeah. On YouTube.com. Yeah. Nope. Good movie. Nice. Yeah, that... 
that description you gave is kind of how I would describe us as well. So I hope you oh, get a chance to watch that. Okay. It is it's it's a spooky movie, but it, it wasn't that scary. And I was curious how scary Nope is, whether I can talk Emily into it. I also have to talk Amanda into it. We almost went to see it in theaters, but she went I down. Really, yeah. I don't think it's scary at all, but I'm happy to answer questions from you both off air with more specifics if you can tell okay. me what each of your partners <laughs> tends to be scared of. I can tell you if it's okay. in the movie or not. I think that... I okay. think Slate did one of those helpful how scary is it? And yeah. then they give a like different rating level for each like gore and jumps. Well, it's like what kinds of things scare you? I mean, yeah, yeah. I, well, no, right. It's a yeah. very subjective question. Totally. Um, at any rate, I, I'm sure I'll watch it at some point. I do love Jordan Peele. Jason, what's your one more thing? Um, my one more thing is a book called Who is Maud Dixon by Alexandra Andrews. And it's a pretty good book. It's a thriller um, about. Uh, don't read the back cover because the back cover spoils a little too much. But I'll 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 try to sum it up without spoiling too much. Which is um, it's a it's a thriller about this kind of aspiring author who comes moves to New York to become a literary assistant, um, and her involvement with a book and an author, a book called uh, um, what is it, Mississippi Foxtrot, and it's mysterious Ray Clues author. Maud Dixon and the mysteries behind both our main character and Maud Dixon, uh, the, uh, the the author, um, who may or may not be going by a pen name, and it's really good. It's a really good thriller. It, it uh, goes from New York to Morocco to upstate. It's really interesting. Got a lot of interesting settings and uh, got got a lot of good twists. A lot of good, well paced twists and turns. Um, just a very good, just a very fun book. Just a very fun read. Uh, for your for your end of summer reading list, if you want a nice little thriller to check out, um, it becomes very clear early on that the protagonist, the literary assistant, uh, might have uh, a couple screws loose. Might might be not quite not quite mm, unreliable what, narrator. What she you say seems. in a thriller? Um, Shocked <laughs> to hear this. <laughs> uh, I wouldn't say unreliable as ah. much as like you just you get her inner thoughts and you're like, wait a minute. What starts off as like as being like, oh, okay, I could relate to this like. 20-something who's ambitious, who's like moved to New York to try to do all this stuff. Um, then you're like, well, wait a minute, what's she doing now? <laughs> and I'll leave, I'll leave it at that. I'll leave it nice. at that. Fun. Who is Maud Dixon? Good book. Who is Maud Dixon by Alexandra Andrews. Really good book. Nice. I'll check it out. Um, well, my one more thing is a video game called Immortality, which is a new, largely full-motion video-based game by Sam Barlow, the creator of Her Story and Telling Lies. And I'll say that I really like it. I think it's really interesting and cool. It's not like anything I've ever played before, and I like it more than I liked his first two games, both of which I played, and neither of which I was wild about. They were both interesting, but I kind of admired them more than liked them and, and left them a little bit frustrated, especially Telling Lies. That one left me pretty cold. Um, her story was, was cool, but had some flaws. So I haven't finished Immortality. I gather it's not super long. I've played two or three hours. Emily and I have been playing on the couch because it largely consists of watching movie clips. So it works really well on your TV. Um, I think this is on Game Pass. It's going to be released to all Netflix subscribers. If, so you get it for free if you subscribe to Netflix. And of course, it's also on Steam and whatever. I'm playing via Steam Link, just plugged into my TV. And you kind of have a controller and you are tasked with going through the archive of this actress who is a fictional person, but she is presented as a real person. So like his other games, it's kind of an operating system game where you're working the controls of this kind of movie navigator, you know, one of those reel to reel movie 
whatever things where you're scrubbing the jog dial and, and all of that. And there are three different movies from three different periods of time that were made in three different sort of styles and cinematic styles. And they all star the same actress. And you're trying to put them all back together. And then in the process, of course, there's kind of this mystery of what became of her. And the game explains this in the sort of about section at the very beginning. And of course, there's more to it than that. And I'm not going to say anything specific here because discovering the specific, the like secrets of this game, it's that's secretly the real a first person shooter, right? Thrill of it. Yes, right. You get your, you get your <laughs> shotgun and then suddenly it's, it's you versus all of the uh, Hollywood big wigs. No. So I'll just say that I think it's really cool. It's, you know, it really was surprising and kind of beguiling in a lot of ways. It really drew me in. I, I found myself right at the moment where I was thinking, okay, so am I just like watching these movies? Like, that's cool, I guess. But what else is there? It kind of <laughs> shocked me in a certain way and surprised me. And it, it kind of it wound up being paced very well for me, despite being largely nonlinear. I think it's very creative in the ways that it sort of pushes you around. And then you're watching these movies out of order. All three of them are... Um, they're kind of all adult erotic thrillers, which is just fun because that style of movie has totally fallen out of fashion. There's one that's very much like Basic Instinct. So it's these kinds of very like R-rated, lots of sex and murder and sort of the kind of movies you just don't really see anymore, like Fatal Attraction and whatever else. Um, so it's kind of fun just to piece the movies together as you go through each clip and you see them out of order. You see some scenes from the movie, you see some scenes from when they're rehearsing to shoot the scene, but you still get the plot of the movie through the rehearsal along with extra stuff. You know, someone will say something. And then the way you actually play the game, just to explain that is you can pause at any moment and then you get a cursor that you can move around and click on any kind of object or face in the scene and that zooms you in on that face and then zooms you out and suddenly you're looking at a different scene that features the same person or the same object. So you'll be in a meeting room and there's a weird plant, you know, on a table and you click on the plant and it zooms in on the plant and then you're in that same meeting room, but it's a different meeting. And so you see something else. Or sometimes it's like a plant in a totally different place in a totally different movie, completely different time. And you're just like thrown into somewhere else. All right. I feel like I feel like I'm hearing too much about this game. I feel like I don't want to know anymore. Okay. Well, I won't. I won't say. I won't say anymore. But that is really not. That's not spoiling anything. That's okay. just explaining the mechanics of the game. This is okay. how the game works. It tells okay. you this in the first tutorial. Um, but I won't say any of the particulars. Spoiler. There's a plant in it. Well, I've seen. I only say that because I've seen a lot of people be like, "Don't look anything up going into this. Like you shouldn't know anything going into this." But I do appreciate your description. Yeah, I, I wanted to at least, if I'm going to recommend a game, to at least say what you do because it's not the most interactive experience in the world. And if someone expecting something that isn't a very unusual, largely passive mental exercise like they might be disappointed but Got it. really cool game i really recommend it especially because so many people are going to be able to play it through subscriptions they already have totally worth your time put it on the tv watch it with some friends i think you'll have a good time you'll be you'll at least be um sort of provoked into thinking things and 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 engaging with it bing Kirk here, as I edit the episode, I just wanted to interject here really quickly to say this game does have a pretty significant content warning, and I should at least mention that it is a very adult game. There's a lot of sex and nudity and some kind of creepy stuff in this game, too. And I didn't mention that when I was talking about it, but it does seem like it's worth mentioning uh, just because that's the kind of game this is, even though it seems pretty straightforward. It's a very adult game, and it has a pretty extensive content warning in the opening menu that you should read and take seriously because all that stuff really is in the game. So this is not one for the kiddos or really for people who, who don't like things that can get kind of weird and kind of creepy. Okay, back to the episode. Bing! So that's Immortality uh, made by Sam Barlow. A really cool game. 
So before we wind up, something sad that we wanted to to mark and pay tribute to, as I'm sure many of you listening already know, Mike Fahey, a titan of video game journalism, a longtime stalwart of Kotaku, a former colleague of all three of ours and friend of all three of ours, uh, passed away over the weekend from health complications. His health had been deteriorating for a while, and it's a really... A really, really sad thing, and um, we just kind of wanted to mention it on the show, all three of us. I'll say for my part that Mike was just such a weird, funny, unique guy. Um, he was there when I started. He was there when I left. He really was Kotaku to me, and you know, he was he was always a guy I worked with, so I've always associated him with Kotaku. But he put so much of himself onto Kotaku. You just got such a sense of his little obsessions. His He got so into mechanical keyboards <laughs> while we were there that he had this massive collection of keyboards. He had so many toys, so much candy that was kind of, he was just like a big kid. And he really helped me, I don't know, look at video games in a different way that I didn't fully appreciate until I was thinking about him over the weekend. And I'll really miss him. And I just wanted to, you know, say that and say thanks, Mike. Yeah, he had this warmth and humor that was like so genuine and you could really feel it in everything that he wrote about is just so um, at a time when blogs were very snarky, uh, he could be snarky, but he also like he wrote with so much passion for everything he loved, like to the point where I mentioned this in in my post on the obituary, which we'll link in the show notes, but uh, to the point where like. I would look at some of his stuff and I would be like, man, is this sponsored content? But like, nobody would actually think that because you read Mike and you know, this is just Mike. Like this is, he genuinely loves the things that he talks about and writes about. And what really impressed me is just like the consistency of his jokes and like how he would always manage to be funny. Like sometimes, sometimes you'd read or you, you, he'd say something or, or you read something of his and it was, it would be like, it would not land well, but then the next line he would have something that was just funny. Like, he would always turn it around and he would always cut the tension. And I think like, I think he would want us to remember him and talk about him and think about him while smiling, like, and having, having humor, having more humor and warmth in, in our lives is, that's, that's, that's just how I'll always think of him as just like bringing more life and warmth and humor to people. Mm-hmm. He was one of the few people I edited where he would come up with multiple versions of a joke and would be like, all right, I've got yeah. a few backups for this. Like he was a real, <laughs> he was a real craftsman. He'd be yeah. like, okay, so like the last line of the post is going to be really funny, but I have three versions of it. So you let me know what you think works. Like he really was his own writer's room in that way. But uh-huh. it just to echo what Jason said and Kirk, I, I feel like he also really changed some of the more bitter feelings that I sometimes have covering video games where I just, I mean, I'm so jaded now. And, you know, we all get video game codes or whatever all the time. And there are certainly times when I get a code for a game that I'm just not that interested in, but I have to play it for work or whatever. And I'm just like, oh, okay, I'm going to install this. But Faye would be the guy who... It didn't matter what it was. He was so excited about video game codes. Mm-hmm. And, like, it was just such a key part of who he was. Like, every game he wanted to try it. And it wasn't just like, oh, like, of course he wants to try it to participate in the conversation. He legit just wanted to play the game. And coverage was sort of secondary to him. Like, he never, <laughs> he never didn't want a code for a game. Ever. And he was always so <laughs> pumped. And I just, I was jealous of that sometimes. Like, just the endless font of 
enthusiasm that he had for what we do. And that didn't mean he didn't get backlash to stories that he wrote or like be it absurd or, or you know, fair. And you'd post some some correction or apology, whatever he's been doing. He had been doing it for so long that, of course, those things would happen. But somehow just he always believed in the things that he covered and he still loves them after all that. And I just I don't know. I'm going to try to take that away when I think about him and remember him and try to be more enthusiastic about this stuff and a little less jaded about it. You uh-huh. know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I was totally, especially when I started at Kotaku, I was so, you know, I was really high minded and into the art uh-huh. part of games and wanted to be this serious critic. And he's he was so he could do that. He had written reviews yeah. that were these beautiful tributes to, these, to the artistic elements of games. But he was so also willing to meet games on the terms of just they're fun. They're stupid. I don't yeah. know. They're silly. They're gross. Like, I just like yeah. them all. And we get to cover games, you guys. We get to right. cover video games. How mm-hmm. great is that? It really helped me appreciate that part of video games, which was a really important thing for me in a way that I'm kind of only just now realizing. And yeah. also he wrote a post about squishing a spider to his ceiling that is one of the greatest blog posts any human being yes. ever wrote. Everyone has mentioned this post <laughs> Definitely because a it's iconic. Blog. I think yeah. about it all the time. Um, he also had such a love for like Kotaku and the institution and yeah. his colleagues and the readers. Yeah. And I remember talking to him when Deadspin collapsed and it was kind of like a lot of people were making their exit plans, including me and Maddie. Kirk was mm-hmm. already gone at that point. Um, and I remember talking to him and he was just like, I don't know what else I would do. Um, and fortunately, he got to he got to stick with Kotaku until the, until until the end, uh, until the end for mm-hmm. him. But um um, but uh, yeah, I was like, you would have so many options. Like you're such yeah. a precarious like, guy. Like you're want so talented. Those options, have... But you yeah, know? that's all he all he wanted to do was just like write silly things for the readership of Kotaku. And I know that uh, many of our listeners are either former readers or current readers of Kotaku or both. And uh, I think he just had he just like cherished every interaction yeah. he had with all of you folks, and uh, he loved it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe the perfect blogger. Rest in peace, Mike Fahey. We'll put a link to the to the wonderful uh, obituary that Kotaku put up with a whole bunch of people paying tribute to Mike uh, in the show notes. And there's also a GoFundMe for his family to help mm-hmm. cover expenses related. And that's our show. So um, thanks, as always, everyone, for listening. Take care of one another out there. Yep. I'll see the two of you next time around. See you guys next week. Bye. Triple Click is produced by Jason Schreier, Maddie Myers, and me, Kirk Hamilton. I edit and mix the show and also wrote our theme music. Our show art is by Tom DJ. Some of the games and products we talked about on this episode may have been sent to us for free for review consideration. You can find a link to our ethics policy in the show notes. Triple Click is a proud member of the Maximum Fun Podcast Network, and if you like our show, we hope you'll consider supporting us by becoming a member at MaximumFun.org join. Find us on Twitter at TripleClickPod, send email to TripleClick at MaximumFun.org, and find a link to our Discord in the show notes. Thanks for listening. See you next time. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.